from uh, about 15 years on up, uh, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Yes, I am not 100%, but I am evil. My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. Hello again, and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast, where we go through the life stories of serial killers to see if we might catch a glimpse of why they displayed their famous, vile, and disturbing behaviors. Special thanks to my patrons who voted for this episode. Thank you so much, guys. You are truly appreciated. And for anyone else, please feel free to join my patrons so that you can vote on who will be covered next or get early access to the podcasts. Like, share, and subscribe. It might just help our little community grow. Any little bit would help me reach my goal of being able to bring you more content with more visuals and perhaps more interviews and so on. So keep it in mind. Today's podcast was voted for by patrons and will be on the National Forest serial killer, Gary Michael Hilton. So let's get into it. Gary Michael Hilton was born on November 22nd, 1946 in Atlanta, Georgia. So as we do, let's get into some history for that time. In 1946, the world was finally at the end of World War II, and people expected life to get better. They had endured the war, of course, but also the Great Depression, the Dust Bowl, and many, many other hardships all over the world. The General Assembly of the United Nations held its very first meeting. The 51 original members met at the Westminster Central Hall in London, England, they adopted their first resolution, which would deal with the new issues arising from atomic energy and nuclear weapons. UNICEF, or the United Nations International Children's Emergency Fund, was also established in 1946. It was created by the General Assembly of the UN in an effort to provide help and services to children living in war-torn or troubled countries. The very first Cannes Film Festival was held in the French Riviera. It was created as a place for up-and-coming films from around the world to be previewed and critiqued. The festival has since evolved into a more commercial thing, but it is still thought of as a prestigious social gathering for the elite of the film industry. In China, 30 million people were close to dying from starvation this year during the ongoing Great Chinese Famine. This was caused by a few factors, such as politics, of course, but natural disasters like droughts and so on. But on a happier note, the very first bikinis went on sale in Paris. Tupperware became available in department and hardware stores, Dean Martin's musical career began as well as B.B. King's. Some other notable people born in 1946 are Ted Bundy, Peter Sutcliffe, 
But Freddie Mercury, Dolly Parton, Steven Spielberg, Sylvester Stallone, Cher, Donald Trump, George W. Bush, Susan Sarandon, and the Barry Gibb. So this was the atmosphere that he was born into. His parents were William Esco Hilton and Cleo M. Reynolds. William was born in Georgia in October of 1911 from a long line of Hiltons from Georgia. It was said that William had served in the Medical Corps of the United States Army and was stationed overseas in England for a time. Cleo was also born in Atlanta, but in 1925. So right off the bat, it is important to say that Gary never knew his father. William went overseas after only three months of he and Cleo being married, and when he came back from England, he had already married another woman. He'd had another wife. Now, Cleo had been unaware of this and stated that William would come home on the weekends, stating that he was, you know, out of town opening a jewelry store. She finally had to hunt him down through lawyers to get a divorce. William did go on to have other biological children with at least two other wives. But when William and Cleo divorced, she took little Gary and moved to Florida. She was a single mother at this point, and her work transferred her from Atlanta down to Tampa, Florida. She said she was a supervisor in a Venetian blinds factory. Now, take a moment to think about that, right? So this was the late 1940s, going into the very early 1950s. Cleo stated in her interview that acquaintances took pity on her, you know, quote, poor Cleo and little Gary with no father and so on, and this irritated her. She didn't want their pity because she had a decent job, she made decent money, and this was one of the many reasons she took the job in Florida to sort of get away from that pity. And once moved, Cleo enrolled him in a daycare and before and after school care. But she had to remove him from one place because apparently they shut him in a bathroom while he yelled and beat on the door. Another daycare was a young married woman who offered to watch him. Only her husband picked Gary up and jokingly threatened to throw him into some pit with the alligators. And it was said that this absolutely terrified Gary. And between these two incidents, Gary never complained. She then removed him from that caregiver and enrolled him in a boys' club for before and after school that was very near her work. And it was said that he did very well. Cleo said that he enjoyed it because they had activities prepared for the kids after school. Gary made friends. He played cops and robbers. He actually won a sharpshooter award. And things really seemed to be positive. In later interviews, Cleo stated that when other kids would sit and read a normal book, Gary would sit and read an entire encyclopedia or even a dictionary for fun. Definitely sounds like me in my own childhood. The other kids thought he was a great friend, and though he was more quiet than not, he did participate in normal young boy rambunctious behavior, and Cleo remembered him being pretty filthy when she'd pick him up, but that was fine by her because he seemed truly happy, and she knew he was getting up to normal boy activities, but she was careful to say that he was not a child who needed a lot of discipline, that he had been a good boy. 
I've always been an advocate for letting kids get dirty, by the way. Let them get their hands in the mud. It's just going to be happy childhood memories and kids will wash. I promise. So then Cleo got married again to a man named Nilo DeBag when Gary was nine years old. Nilo had been from Argentina and had lived in the States around, she said, five to ten years or so prior to meeting her. Nilo owned racehorses, and they traveled quite a lot for that. The small family would move. They would live in an apartment while Nilo did his work, and then after a few months, the young boy would be uprooted and be forced to move to a new place. But Gary actually liked the horses and happily helped his stepfather with them in the very early hours before he'd even get ready and go to school. And it was said that Gary enjoyed the traveling, so there is that. So Gary's teachers were quite impressed with him and even told his mother that he could skip up to the next grade if he wanted to. But Cleo wouldn't hear of that. She said she had been afraid that the next school might, quote, knock him back down, and she didn't want that, so she left him in the grade he had been in. Now, she did say that, with regards to Nilo being a father figure to Gary, that parenting techniques in Argentina back then were quite strict, and this bled over into their life. Nilo was quite strict with her son, expecting near perfection, but Nilo was jealous of Gary's relationship with his mother, according to Cleo, and vice versa. Gary would also resent it if Cleo showed too much attention to her new husband, but Cleo was careful to say that Nilo never hit or physically abused Gary. But once her son was around 10 years old, Nilo started saying little things like, why doesn't he quit school and get a job? And Cleo stated that she would come to her son's defense and say that Gary was in school and that she would keep him in school for as long as she could. Nilo would then say, well, when I was his age, I was working and supporting the family. Cultural differences, to be sure. It is said that Gary never argued back. He would just sit or stand there and not say a word. And he certainly didn't talk back. Gary would just do whatever was asked of him. No complaints. The family had a Dalmatian dog, and Gary loved that dog. Cleo told her interviewers that Gary would dress the dog up for Halloween and take him trick-or-treating with him. She said he was very kind to the dog, and the dog sought out Gary's attention and affection. Then in 1956, 10-year-old Gary suffered a traumatic brain injury when a Murphy bed, which is one of those beds that will fold up into like a fancy tall dresser or cabinet, kind of a hideaway bed, well, it opened and the middle frame hit him in the head, nearly scalping him on the back of his head. It was said that it took around 200 stitches to get it reattached and he was in the hospital for a short time. After he was caught for his crimes later in his life, obviously, he was given a PET scan and the results were consistent with someone who had a traumatic brain injury. So expanding on that, in court documents, it was revealed that he actually had significant abnormalities, including hypofrontality, meaning decreased blood flow to the prefrontal cortex of the brain. The doctor said the scan results were consistent with Gary's verbal history of brain injury. Damage to the frontal lobe as a child has a greater impact on the person's ability to regulate impulses and exercise judgment than such an injury would present to a person later in life. 
Because the normal development of the frontal lobe and impulse control does not mature until a person's in their mid-20s, an early brain injury impairs impulse control from ever properly developing. The person with an early brain injury is also more prone to develop psychiatric problems like schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, just to give you an idea. We never want any sort of damage to the prefrontal cortex, like ever. So when Gary was 12 years old, Cleo had decided she was done traveling, and the family moved to Hialeah, Florida, basically a suburb of Miami. She felt that he needed to be more settled and make some more long-term friends as he was beginning to age. In junior high, teachers commented that he would be able to finish his work faster than the other kids, and then he would be kind of ornery and, you know, distract the other students from their work, but it certainly wasn't a negative thing, if you know what I mean. He would just be silly and make the other students laugh. Cleo said that Gary really wasn't a troublemaker. It was all innocent distractions, and the teachers spoke well of him. And then as Gary approached puberty... Tensions in the home were building, as sources said Gary did not like the gruff way his stepfather was treating his mother. Cleo herself said that Nilo never hit her, or Gary for that matter, but he would raise his voice at her and then apologize. Could it have been more intense? Of course. The interview with Cleo was when she was quite elderly and defending her son, so keep that in mind. But regardless... Tensions were mounting, and due to Nilo being loud and being aggressive, Cleo left him several times. And each time he would tell her that he was sorry, that he knew he was crazy, and he would agree to go to counseling. He would go to one session, by the way, deemed himself cured, and the whole scenario would repeat itself. But nonetheless, an argument ensued one day when Nilo told Gary, Just shoot me! The now 13-year-old Gary, who had borrowed a gun from a friend, shot his stepfather, Nilo. But Nilo survived and didn't press charges. His mother kicked him out of the house, though, but eventually allowed him to move back home before the next school year started. And that same school year, he began junior high at Miami Springs Junior High. At 14 years old, he moved in with Mark and Don Jeffers during yet another bit of drama within the home, and then eventually he moved back home again. In high school, he picked up playing the drums and he practiced quite a bit. He even played with others and dropped out of high school his senior year to play in a group in a nightclub. Gary loved playing music, but once the nightclub discovered he was underage, they would no longer allow him to play. And guys, this is the end of his childhood. And there's a little bit here, so let's unpack. In Gary's later court documents, his lawyers cite that he was deprived of a relationship with his biological father and that that was one of a list of things he wanted credit for as far as sentencing goes. Or really, the document was an appeal. And of course, having a parent completely abandon a child would be devastating, to be sure. Only he had never even known his biological father. And I mean, I really didn't know mine either, so there's no relationship to really mourn for, if that makes sense. 
William being completely out of the picture would have been the less traumatic out of the available options, such as just floating in and out, which would have done a lot more damage. So while I don't want to diminish that situation for Gary, I really don't feel that it was at least a hugely contributing factor to his future crimes. It is noteworthy, though. He didn't seem to display any conduct-disordered behavior in his youth either. His mother reported that he was a very well-behaved child. His teachers reported the same, other than he would get his work done ahead of time and distract the other students, but I got the sense that this was just in jest, a bit of innocent messing around. There were no disciplinary issues with him with regards to his peers, to the authority figures around him, no anti-social behaviors, and in fact, the information I found stated he was rather pro-social, to be honest. No fire starting, no bedwetting no animal torture or killing, so the McDonald triad covered. There didn't seem to be any withdrawing when he had to move from one school to another due to his stepfather's job working with racehorses. His mother reported that he actually enjoyed the traveling. He was highly intelligent, and various teachers told his mother that he could skip a grade easily. He read highly educational and not the most entertaining books for fun, same as me. So there really are only two things that seem to stand out with Gary to me. One is Nilo coming into the picture when he was nine years old, and then the traumatic brain injury a year later. So with regards to gaining a new step-parent, living in step-family households, children are more likely to have anxiety issues, depression, behavioral issues, difficulty making and keeping friends, and repeated a grade in school relative to children who live with both biological parents. This is the textbook information, only Gary really didn't seem to be affected by any of that. He accepted his stepfather and even happily went out to help tend the horses and so on. There was the very predictable and normal jealousy between the two males for wanting more singular attention from Cleo, but other than that, it was okay. Nilo was described as being strict but never physically hitting Gary. We get the sense that Nilo had a big, boisterous personality, right? He was passionate about his beliefs, and there was some friction, no doubt about it, so that cannot be discounted either. Cleo, in her interview, would not really discuss the shooting, and we will get into that in a moment. So let's move on to the head trauma. So children who experience a traumatic brain injury can experience changes in their health, thinking, and behavior that affect learning, self-regulation, and social participation, all of which are important in becoming a productive adult. Deficits may not be immediately apparent because the pediatric brain is still developing. TBI, or traumatic brain injuries, in children is a chronic disease process rather than a one-time event because symptoms may change and unfold over time. We saw that with Russian serial killer Alexander Pachushkin. He was a very typical young boy being raised by a single mother who didn't display any conduct disordered behavior until his head trauma. Now, the head trauma happened when he was 10 years old and he shot his stepfather when he was 13 years old. So just as he's getting into puberty and hormones and emotions are all over the place, 
At this point, there was enough drama in the house that Gary felt Nilo wasn't treating his mother very well, and he shot him. I couldn't find out where he was shot, only that Nilo survived. But Nilo's treatment of Cleo must have been pretty intense because she said multiple times that she had left her husband quite a few times because of his getting loud and obnoxious. Could the head trauma have contributed to this incident, to the shooting? I feel like it most certainly did. Later brain scans, again, would show that his prefrontal cortex was compromised, and we all know that that region of the brain is vital. As a refresher, the development of the prefrontal cortex of the frontal lobe allows us to process the pros and cons of a decision before it is made, and his was, of course, compromised, which would have limited his impulse control. So after this, he had to go live with another couple until the new school year started, but, you know, the damage was done. Cleo spoke of Gary in his mid-teens, having to go out and go for long walks in the evenings as he felt restless, and he told her that he wanted to be able to drop out of school and join the military, or else he felt he was going to get into trouble. So I feel like he had perhaps some awareness that something was amiss and he was trying to take a step in what he thought would be a positive direction. So if that's the case, that's to be celebrated. So I really feel as though we have a case here where Gary's childhood situation was not ideal, of course, but that he was adjusting in a decently healthy way. He didn't seem to be neglected or abused, perhaps some emotional abuse from Nilo. And, you know, perhaps his stepfather was an asshole. But that's a valid point of contention, of course. But I don't get the feeling it was completely out of control. Court documents state he was deprived of a loving bond with his mother. But I don't see any real hints of this at all. I feel like the main contributing factor is the rather serious head injury that he suffered from that Murphy bed. And then some possible stepfather issues. So let's get back into it. During 1964 through 67, he served in the army. Of course, we know he joined when he was 17 years old. Again, he told his mother that he felt he was going to get in trouble if he didn't do this. Once he was done with basic training, Gary volunteered to be a paratrooper and later attended Airborne School at Fort Benning in Georgia. So, Walking Dead fans, you get that reference. His first assignment was in Germany, and he later told his mother that he had been a Green Beret, but a couple of sources said that his military records do not reflect that, so take that with a grain of salt. Now, while in Germany, 21-year-old Gary met and married his first wife. She was an architect, or at least that's what she told his mother. But Gary would be honorably discharged due to a mental health breakdown labeled a, quote, schizophrenic breakdown. What they said was that he was having auditory hallucinations. After this, he began drinking and abusing LSD and quaaludes, which is a sedative and a hypnotic. This, of course, would be him trying to self-medicate his growing mental health situation. His first wife and he divorced after two years. So after the military, he attended school to become a pilot and a flight instructor. As time passed, he married again at 23 years old to another woman, but that marriage didn't last either. 
He was arrested occasionally for minor offenses, theft and simple battery, but never served any real amount of jail time. He married a third time and yet another divorce. After the last divorce, Gary was arrested for arson, possession of marijuana, and a theft. He pleaded guilty to the theft and got five years probation. By the time he was 40 years old, he had racked up quite a rap sheet, but all of it was just theft or drug possession, kind of smaller things. When he was 48 years old, he was arrested for stealing books from a bookstore. So he was living his life after the military, just doing small, petty crimes, not good, not horrible, and he was arrested and let go several, several times. By his early 50s, Gary was back in his hometown of Atlanta, working as a roofer. In 1997, Gary met a man named John Tabor. Now, John kind of took the aimless Gary in, found him a place to live, and hired him on at a call center where he sold siding for a company called Insulated Wall Systems. This is where he would work for the next 10 years. But it was in 2005 that things seemed to really take a dangerous turn for Gary, and he was fairly advanced in age for his killing spree to begin compared to most serial killers, and I just found that very noteworthy. So first, in 2005, the first thing that happened is that he went to a doctor complaining of symptoms that he was having, unable to stay focused, irritability, low impulse control, among other symptoms, and he was prescribed Ritalin. Now, for those that might not know what Ritalin is, it's a stimulant that treats attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. It works by improving your focus and reducing impulsive behaviors. It can also treat narcolepsy by promoting wakefulness. I mean, maybe I should give that a try. Only Gary abused the Ritalin. With the alcohol and the other drugs, he actually began to lose his self-control. His first suspected victim was 26-year-old Rosanna Miliani, who was a hiker from Miami, Florida, who was last seen around noon at the Ramada Inn Hotel in Cherokee, North Carolina. This is only three hours north of Atlanta. She had called her father from the hotel that day and told him she was going to hike on the Appalachian Trail. She was never seen again. Much later, a store clerk who read about her disappearance claimed she sold a backpack to Rosanna and an unidentified white man in his 60s in Bryson City, North Carolina in 2005. After Gary's eventual arrest, the store clerk contacted authorities to note the similarities between Hilton and the suspect, but he was not charged with her murder. As of this recording, anyway, he has still not been. Not even two years later, his friend and employer, John Tabor, became fed up with the constant begging for money from Gary. And when Gary demanded that John give him $10,000 or else he would kill him, John filed a complaint against Gary, and, you know, rightfully so. In less than a month, he would take his first confirmed victim. In October of 2007, an elderly couple in their twilight years decided to go on a hike in the Appalachian Mountains in western North Carolina. Two weeks later, after their family had not heard from them, they reported them as missing. 
The authorities examined their phone records, and it was discovered that John had attempted to call 911 on the day of their disappearance, but the signal was lost. The call was dropped. The next month, the wife's remains were found. She had been discarded, and leaves and sort of forest debris had been placed over her. She had been bludgeoned to death with a blunt instrument. They found the husband's skull a year later, and it was positively identified. A whole month and a half after he killed the elderly couple, he murdered 46-year-old Cheryl Hodges Dunlap in Florida. Two weeks after Cheryl had disappeared, a hunter found her decapitated and decomposing remains and called the police. Clearly a homicide, the authorities announced that they were looking for a suspicious green truck seen in the area around the time Cheryl had disappeared, and the tips came in pretty quickly, including reports of a strange homeless man with a dog who was driving a green 2001 Chevrolet Astro van but they were unable to locate him. And this was about the time that the rumors began circulating that a serial killer was operating between Georgia and Florida. Still, at the time, the Leon County Sheriff's Office stated that they were investigating the case as an isolated homicide. In January 2008, 24-year-old Meredith Emerson went for a hike along the Freeman Trail on Blood Mountain in Georgia's Vogel State Park. She brought her dog, Ella, with her, and according to several witnesses, they saw an older man with his dog following her. Two days later, the authorities located her car where they found various items such as her water bottle, the dog leash, and a police baton. Gary had taken her and kept her alive for four days, camping with her. He later said that he had asked her for her debit card PIN number and that when she failed to give him the correct number, that was when he kept her for four days before killing her. But rest assured, he had found himself unable to kill her dog. Investigators were able to get some info on the man seen following Meredith that pointed at the now 61-year-old Gary. At this point, he was a local drifter known for his strange behavior and hot temper. He often took his dog for walks on the trails. At this point, Gary was announced as a person of interest in the case. The next day, Ella, Meredith's dog, was found wandering around a Kroger parking lot, which is a grocery store, and she returned to a family member. On January 5th, Authorities located numerous personal belongings of Meredith's inside a dumpster near a quick-trip gas station parking lot, including her bloodied clothing, wallet, driver's license, a University of Georgia ID card, and a blood-stained car seatbelt that was later tested to have come out of Gary's vehicle. After some people called in that a man matching the description and the vehicle matching and so on was vacuuming out his vehicle at a car wash, and he was quickly arrested. In exchange for dropping the death penalty against him, Gary agreed to reveal where he had disposed of her remains. He said he had hit her repeatedly with a tire iron until she died. He had then decapitated her cut off her hands and tossed them into his campfire fire pit. So a direct quote from Gary, this is what he has to say about himself. Hang on, quote, 
I'm not all bad. I mean, you got to understand. I mean, I'm sure you can see. I mean, I'm a fucking genius, man. I'm not a, I'm not all bad. I just, you know, lost my mind for a little bit. Lost a grip on myself, man. What can I tell you? FBI and everybody else is trying to scratch their head. Hey, guys, don't get started doing my shit at 61 years old. It just don't happen, you know? Like there's a retired FBI something indecipherable, named Cliff Van, Clifford Van Zant, that keeps getting himself in the news talking about me. And he said, this guy didn't just fall off the turnip truck, he said. You know, in other words, he's been doing this. But like I told you before, you know, when I saw you before, I said, remember, I said I'd give you one for free. Nothing before September, okay? I mean, I'm not joking, okay? I just, I got old and sick and couldn't make a living and just lost, flat lost my fucking mind for a while, man. I couldn't get a grip on it. End quote. Hope you enjoyed that. Hilton said killing was dreadful, but he knew that when you take someone, you either kill them or get caught. And he said he got no satisfaction from the killing. However, he did say that he was able to kill because of his general rage against society. He actually said that killing was a surreal experience. Now, there are four other suspected victims of Gary's. He was found guilty of four murders and was actually sentenced to death. He was 64 years old when he was sentenced. So I found a little blip in his... Um, appeal paperwork that I wanted to read to you guys. So in his appeal court documents, it says, quote, Dr. Wu concluded that Hilton had likely become depressed as part of his deteriorating schizoaffective psychiatric problems. Dr. Harry Delcher, an endocrinologist, began treating Hilton in 2005 with Ritalin to give him energy. Although Delcher initially prescribed a low dose of 20 milligrams of Ritalin, he substantially increased the dose to 80 milligrams by 2007, even though Hilton displayed manic symptoms. Hilton deteriorated faster, and he became bizarre and manic. Symptoms of mania can include hyperaggressiveness, increased energy, grandiosity, and impaired judgment. Hilton's employer said that Hilton's problems at work started in 2005. Hilton's behaviors during this time included rambling, pressured speech, aggressiveness, and threatening. Hilton was grandiose and delusional. So, tell me guys, what do you think about this? You know, most all of the childhood info was directly from his mother. I do want to make sure that that's clear. So did she perhaps downplay any behaviors? Maybe, probably, plausible. Was she evasive with some of her information? I mean, she certainly would, at the, the section that I listened to, she would not talk about the shooting. But being evasive to try to protect your child, what mother wouldn't? I mean, I don't know that I would if mine were serial killers, but I digress. Maybe he really was this great kid that was so pro-social. You know, I don't know. Tell me, guys, what do you think? Do you think it was just the head trauma and maybe a little bit of um, some trauma from his stepfather? Outside of that, there just really wasn't any information about his childhood that was supremely negative. So I would love to hear your theories or ideas. 
You can DM me on Instagram at serial underscore killing, or you can come join the Serial Killing a Podcast fan page on Facebook that was created by a listener. We're pretty active over there. I'm active on, on Instagram and Facebook quite a bit. So outside of that, thank you so, so much, guys. I do appreciate you guys listening to me even after all these years. It's amazing. So have a good day. Anybody who killed more than two or three people was a mass murderer. And whether it was all at one place or over an extended period of time, and then uh, in the early 80s, they came up with this differentiation called serial killing.